Now we are fast approaching the annual celebration of the resurrection of Jesus. In just three weeks, it will be Easter Sunday. But before we celebrate another Easter, we really should give consideration to what preceded Easter. Now, our liturgical brothers and sisters prepare for Easter by following a calendar that includes a season of Lent, uh, beginning on Ash Wednesday, and a Holy Week that includes Maundy Thursday, Good Friday, and Holy Saturday. It's not our practice to follow a liturgical calendar or to use a lectionary to guide us to the scriptures to be read on a given Sunday, but it is important that we too remember the death and burial of Jesus before we celebrate the resurrection. Even then, however, it's not enough to just remember what happened. In order for the celebration of Easter to be really meaningful, it must be personal. I must remember that Jesus rose from the dead to save me. Remembering his death must be personal as well. He didn't just die to save the world from sin. He died to save me from my sin. In other words, my guilt sent Jesus to the cross. Now that fact is not easy to embrace emotionally or intellectually. And since it happened 2,000 years ago, it's easy to avoid thinking about it. But it is essential that I embrace it if what Jesus did on the cross is to have real impact on my life. It's imperative that I be confronted with the role I played in the death of Jesus before I can respond appropriately to the gospel. The good news made possible by the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And it was essential that those who were directly responsible for the death of Jesus 2,000 years ago be confronted with the role they played in his death as well. This Peter is about to do for a second time. He had confronted some of them earlier on the day of Pentecost when he had declared, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man, delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men, and put him to death. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart, and they cried out, What shall we do? Peter told them to repent. And be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. And 3,000 were baptized that very day. 
Now, we're not sure of the time interval between the events recorded in chapter 2 and the events of chapter 3. It may have been a matter of days or weeks or perhaps even a month or two. But once again, we find Peter in the temple about to address an audience that includes some who had cried, crucify him. Pilate asked what should be done with Jesus. And as before, his sermon is prefaced with a miracle. On Pentecost, do you remember? It was a sound of violent rushing wind, tongues of fire settling on the apostles, and their miraculous ability to declare the deeds of God in a variety of languages that caught the attention of the people. Now it was the healing of the man who had been lame from birth, unable to walk, a man who was now walking and leaping and praising God in the temple courtyard. We pick up the account in Acts chapter 3, verse 11. And while he was clinging to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them at the so-called portico of Solomon, full of amazement. All the regulars in the temple knew this man. He had begged by the beautiful gate for years, and now, after leaping around, he was clinging to Peter and John, grateful for what they had done. The people were amazed by what had taken place, and they ran to where Peter and John and the man were, to the portico of Solomon, or Solomon's colonnade, a sheltered porch that ran the length of the eastern wall of the outer court of the temple area. The portico had been built at least in part from remains of Solomon's temple, thus the name. It was 60 feet deep and over 1,500 feet long with a a cedar roof supported by stone columns 37 feet high. It was a popular gathering place where people could be protected from the elements while engaged in in temple activities. It was here that the crowd gathered and where Peter preached his second recorded sermon. A sermon not too unlike his first. One that can be divided into three points. Point one, you killed the author of life. Point two, you acted in ignorance. Point three, you must turn from your wickedness. That's a pretty harsh sermon, but one that should speak to us as well. And Peter begins with the bold declaration, you killed the author of life. But when Peter saw this, he replied to the people, men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why do you gaze at us as if by our own power or piety we made him walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, the one whom you delivered up and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, but put to death the prince, the author of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, the fact to which we are witnesses. And on the basis of faith in his name, 
It is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know. And the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect health in the presence of you all. The people had gathered because they couldn't believe what was taking place. They were excited. They marveled. They were amazed. And Peter spoke. And he began by making it very clear that the one responsible for the healing of the lame man was Jesus. It wasn't something Peter and John had done by their own power and piety. It was something Jesus had done through them. The miracle had been done in the name of Jesus by his authority through faith in him. And interestingly, the faith involved was not the lame man's faith. It was the faith of Peter and John. Jesus had promised to work through them, and they had confidence in his word. They trusted him enough to go out on a limb and publicly declare, in the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, walk. And he walked. Now again, the power did not originate with the apostles, nor did it actually come from their faith. The power to heal had been given to them. They simply had enough faith to believe they could do what Jesus had told them they could do. Now there are some today who believe that if you just have enough faith, you can do anything. But that's not true. If you have not been given the power to heal, no amount of faith will make you into a healer. It wasn't the apostles' tremendous faith that gave them miraculous power. Their faith just gave them the courage to do what Jesus had previously empowered them to do. And that power came from the same God the Jews worship, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God of their fathers. He was ultimately the one working through the apostles in the name of Jesus. A name God himself glorified by the miracle they had witnessed. And he was the same Jesus they had delivered up. And disowned. And put to death. Peter was once again pointing a finger at his unbelieving brethren, saying, You killed the Messiah God sent to save us. You killed the Holy and Righteous One, the Prince, the author of life. And he emphasized their personal responsibility for his death. In the original language, you is emphasized throughout the passage. The NIV comes a little closer to catching this emphasis when it says, you handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the Holy and Righteous One and asked that a murder be released to you. You killed the author of life. You did this. You are responsible for killing the one God glorified through the miracle standing before you. You fought against God, against the government. 
and against all that is just and decent by killing Jesus. You are guilty of killing the Son of God. But God raised him from the dead. And we are witnesses of that fact. We've seen him. We've talked with him. We've eaten with him. In fact, he's the one who commissioned us to tell you that in spite of the horror of your sin, he can forgive you because you acted in ignorance. And now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance, just as your rulers did also. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets, that as Christ should suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and return, that your sins may be wiped away, in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus, the Christ, appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. Now, no one likes to be called ignorant. But sometimes we're grateful for a little ignorance. I'm sure Peter's hearers were grateful to hear him say that he knew they acted in ignorance, as their rulers had done when they crucified Jesus. Now, that's not an excuse for what they had done. Ignorance of the law is no excuse. Even if you don't know the law, you're guilty if you break it. However, ignorance of the law may lead to a more lenient sentence and possibly even a pardon for the offense. So it does make a difference if you act in ignorance or sin intentionally. The Old Testament law even acknowledged this. In fact, the whole sacrificial system was set up to make it possible for unintentional sins to be forgiven. It was not designed so people could sin at will and then be forgiven. Intentional, defiant sins could not be forgiven. Anyone who defiantly despised the word was to be cut off and his guilt was to remain on him. Moses made that perfectly clear in in Numbers 15. But if the nation sinned unintentionally, without knowledge of God's will, it could be forgiven through the acknowledgement of sin and the proper sacrifice. The same was true for an individual. And Peter said it was true, even for those who crucified Jesus. But of course, Jesus had said the same thing from the cross. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Peter's hearers had acted in ignorance. They really didn't know that Jesus was God's son. And then, to further assure them 
that they hadn't so offended God by crucifying his son that he could never forgive them, Peter said God had announced beforehand through the prophets that his Christ should suffer. In his first sermon, he had even said Jesus had been delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. So God knew what they were going to do. In fact, he had planned for it to happen. Now, that didn't relieve them of the responsibility for what they had done. God had not programmed them to do it. They had a choice in the matter. But if they hadn't done it, someone else would have, because God knew someone, through ignorance, would kill his son. In fact, he knew that the death of his son was necessary if the penalty for sin was to be paid. So while they were responsible for the death of his son, God was not going to hold it against them if they would now repent of what they had done. To repent means to change your mind. And now that they knew who Jesus was, the only appropriate response was repentance. To be sorry for what they had done. And to then be motivated by that sorrow and change of heart to return to a life of obedience. To come back into the will of God. To find the forgiveness he makes possible. And to be made ready for the second coming of Christ. And the restoration of all things to the way they were before sin entered into God's perfect creation. But in order for them to be made ready for that, Peter declared, you must turn from your wickedness. Moses said, the Lord shall raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. To him you shall give heed in everything he says to you. And it shall be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Likewise, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and his successors onward also announce these days. It is you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. For you first, God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. Peter wasn't asking them to do anything Moses and the prophets hadn't told them to do. Moses had said God would raise up another prophet like himself and the people should heed everything he said to them. And those who didn't would be utterly destroyed. The rest of the prophets from Samuel to Malachi foretold the days in which they were living. And they knew what the prophets had said because they were the sons of the prophets and heirs of the covenant made with Abraham. All they had to do was recognize that Jesus was indeed the servant God had raised up according to promise. And the evidence was undeniable. The man was standing before them, healed 
by the power of God through the name of Jesus. He was testimony to the fact that Jesus was the Son of God, the Messiah sent to bless them if only they would turn from their wicked ways. And obviously, the most wicked thing they had ever done was kill the one sent to save them. But even that could be forgiven if they would turn from wickedness and turn back to God. At that point, as we'll see next week, the sermon was interrupted. Peter didn't get a chance to tell them how to express their desire to turn from wickedness and turn back to God, but he had told them how in his first sermon. He had made it clear that through baptism, they could die to sin and rise to walk in newness of life. And the same is true today. If we would be blessed by God, if we would know the times of refreshing that comes from the presence of the Lord, if we would be made ready for the second coming of Christ, we too must turn from our wicked ways, those sins which we've been committing in ignorance and weakness, and heed everything Christ says to us in his word. To refuse to do so after knowing the truth is to crucify again the Son of God and to put him to open shame. Surely you don't want to have to pay the penalty for crucifying the Son of God. If you've not already done so, admit your role, the role you played in his death, and repent. Turn from your wicked ways and find forgiveness. Again, how can that be done? Peter told us in his first sermon, repent and let each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. If you want times of refreshing that come from the presence of God's Holy Spirit in your life, come and let Christ cleanse you from every sin and set you free. It's essential that we acknowledge our sin. It's essential that we admit the role our sin played in the death of Jesus before the gospel can be good news. We have to embrace that intellectually and emotionally because it's understanding what you did that sent God's son to the cross that will open up your heart to him and be changed by what he did for you. Let's not let Easter just be a celebration of history. Let's let it be a celebration 
of the fact that we have been cleansed and made acceptable in the sight of God and forgiven for what we've done to his son. Let's stand.